Okay, so Rabbi Silver told me that uh, we're up to up to Perikim, up to chapter three in in Shemot, uh, with the story of uh, of Moshe and the burning bush. Um, so there's there's obviously something slightly uh, I don't say awkward, but slightly uncomfortable about coming in the middle of a series and not knowing exactly what uh, Rabbi Silver has said until now. Um, so I I do want to hear. I, I would like to situate the story in how I understand the first few chapters of the book of, uh, book of Exodus, book of Shemot. But, um, but I do want to hear from you if there's, if there's a point that I make that Rabbi Silver says something slightly different about or uh, emphasize something uh, you know, additional. Uh, I'd love to hear, um, uh, especially now in this first part where I try to, try to situate it. So, uh, so let me tell you essentially my understanding of what's, uh, what the major purpose of chapter 3 and 4, uh, but chapter 3 is. In, let's start with uh, situating it after 2. So in Perikvet, in chapter 2, we were introduced to the character of Moshe. We have in the first 22 verses of the chapter, the first, basically, Perikvet, Sukim Aleph, Turchavet, we have more or less a complete biography of the character of Moshe. What do I mean by that? I mean the first <coughs> ten verses tell the story of his birth, which is miraculous. It leads us to think that there's something, uh, something very special that's going to happen with this young man. What do I mean it's miraculous? There's nothing actually miraculous about it in the, in the text, but um, the, the miracle is just that he's alive by the end of, by the end of verse ten. Uh, there is, <coughs> there is a a motif, a folklore motif, that seems to be played on in, this, in the story. Uh, it's a very famous motif that um, I've heard from, from people that uh, exist even in, in current stories, in, in contemporary stories, but it certainly exists in some ancient stories. And I'll give you one version of it. Uh, the King Sargon, who is a king of Akkad uh, in Mesopotamia in the third millennium BCE, uh, in other words, about a thousand years before Moshe, um, has uh, the story about him that he was born out of an illicit union of the king and the high priestess. The illicitness was not that they uh, slept together, that they were actually supposed to do, but she wasn't allowed to get pregnant. Uh, So she had a a baby. Uh, She wasn't allowed to have a baby, so she cast the baby away. The baby was found by uh, a water drawer, actually. (coughs) In other words, a a poor person in society. Uh, who raised the baby as his own. And then, the story is not exactly told, but somehow through some twists of fate, uh, this kid, Sargon, whose name wasn't Sargon at that point, because Sargon means just king, uh, but whatever his name was, rose to power, presumably through some luck and some violence, uh, and eventually became the king. Now, what's the point of a story like this? Why would Sargon want to tell a story like this? Well, stories are political. So if a king tells a story about their own, their own origins, it's political, right? So what would someone else say about Sargon? Sargon's now the king of Akkad. What are people saying about Sargon that he needs to tell a story like this to counter? Exactly. Who is this guy? I mean, he was the, the son of a water drawer, right? I mean, it was this kid who grew up in the countryside, I don't know, illiterate. I mean, who, who is he to come take over the throne? And again, we don't know exactly how he took over the throne, but it couldn't have been a, a nice, neat succession because... By his own admission, he grew up the son of a water drawer. Um, so presumably, people died on the way. He 
all sorts of machinations. He becomes king. And he tells a story that essentially says, I know it looks like I'm usurping the throne. It looks like I'm not really rightful, the rightful heir to the throne. But really, you have to understand that in the background, I really am. Right? And there's a story that goes back that's secret. It has to be secret. By definition, it's secret. Right? No one can know about his birth. Uh, and so it's unverifiable in a sense. But, uh, but the claim is, uh, I have all the standing in the world to be the king. Uh, it's just that through some weird circumstance, I happen not to grow up in this palace, but now I'm back in the palace. That's actually where I rightfully, rightfully belong. Uh, the story of Oedipus is, shares that, right? Which is why he winds up killing his father and sleeping with his mother, is that he doesn't know that he's the son of the king and the queen. Um, so he is. He's not for a long time. In other words, if you watched him grow up, you would never have known that. And by the end, we all, find, we all knew from the beginning, but he finds out that actually he is the rightful king, um, even though in the middle it was not. Um, there's a, you know, Snow White might be an example. There's a, a whole bunch of examples, actually, uh, of this, of this uh, motif of a child who's born to a high position, grows up in a low position, but eventually ascends to that high position again. Now, Moshe has a very interesting, Moshe's story has a very interesting twist on that. Right? It's the reverse. He's born to a slave, or whatever, well, you know, the, the Israelite, grows up in the palace, and then comes back to being the leader of the slaves. Right? Um, now, in a sense, in a sense, it's not the reverse. I mean, it is, but it's, in a sense, it's not, because the Israelites would say, well, you're mixing up highs and lows. I mean, which is the high status, which is the low status? High status is not being born to the Egyptian royalty. High status is being born to, to the Israelites. Uh, and, you know, Egyptian royalty is low status. What do you think? lady, no less. Right, right, exactly. Um, so, so there's something that seems, seems like a twist on the motif, but it's, uh, but it's certainly, um, it's certainly uh, a parallel use of the same, same basic idea. The birth is actually, uh, if you just look at the birth of a child and where the child ends up, this makes perfect sense. But in between, there's something that goes in a totally different direction. And if you had frozen time any point in the middle, you never would have guessed that they would have gotten back to where they had, they had come from. But the story becomes very important at the end, when you say, wait a second, how could this person, how could this person grow up and be the leader, let's say in our case, right? How could, how could this kid who grew up in the Egyptian palace be the leader of the Israelites, fighting against the Egyptians and leading the Israelites out of Egypt? What right does he have to come in and, and tell the Israelites what to do and teach them religion? This is totally inappropriate. He's an Egyptian prince. So maybe he wasn't heir to the throne, so he's frustrated. He wants to be the leader of some other people, so he's, he's acting it out on the Israelites. But what's going on here? And the Torah tells him, no, 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 you have to understand. There's actually a background story here. Right? He was born to the Israelites, and as you say, to the tribe of Levi, no less. He's an important person in, in, uh, in, his, in the nation of Israel. In the middle, though, we wouldn't have known him. Now, that middle is basically all of chapter 2, and that middle is very, very important. Uh, I should just, I should just uh, mention, just as a, a footnote, that uh, Freud, in his book Moses and Monotheism, actually builds his entire thesis, which gets a little bit crazy, uh, but builds his entire thesis on this, this observation. He then develops a, a whole theory about how Moses actually wasn't an Israelite and actually was an Egyptian. Um, uh, which we'll come back to in a different way in a, in a moment, but, uh, but he's, he's convinced that that's true. Uh, he then has a further theory, which we realize there's no real point in talking a lot about, but about how he claims that the Israelites killed Moses when they left Egypt because he was too austere and strict, and then uh, there was actually another leader who had a different name, but he was, the first Moses was deified, and the second Moses became conflated in their mind, 
Um, and this is when you start hearing, like, oh, this is Freud. Uh, but, um, but Freud is, you know, he doesn't, <laughs> you don't need me to tell you that he was a genius. He's a very intelligent person, well-read, well um, remarkably well-read. There's actually a quote from him in the Brooklyn Museum, uh, in the Egyptian section, uh, where he, Freud says that he's actually read more, more in Egyptology than in uh, psychoanalysis in the, in the past decade or whatever it was. Uh, and there's something actually very interesting uh, the book Moses and Monotheism is the, the last book that Freud wrote. Uh, it's the only book he wrote after he left Vienna in 1938. Uh, he had held out till the very last minute. Um, remember, he's someone who would try to put his Jewishness behind him. Um, and he held out to the very last minute because he thought that if he left, the whole, the whole institution of psychoanalysis would be in danger. That he was sort of single-handedly protecting uh, the whole discipline, uh, but in 1938 he, had, he left, went to his daughter in London, and the only book he wrote after he got to London was Moses and Monotheism. So for someone who tried to put the Jewishness behind him, he comes at the very last year of his life, and actually for the first time in his life, writes a book about the Bible. Uh, now in a sense, of course, it's a very subversive book about the Bible, claiming that the whole the leader of the Israelites is, uh, is actually Egyptian rather than an Israelite. But, uh, but it's, a, it's something interesting for for students of Freud, that this is what he comes to in the, in the last year of his life. For students of Bible, uh, for us, students of the Torah, it's interesting that he has some very sharp observations uh, about the power of a story like this uh, for a nation. Uh, and I think that's actually key for Perak Bet. Uh, again, so I don't want to follow Freud in all the details, but I do want to follow him in thinking about the very complicated identity that Moshe possesses in Perak Bet. Because on the one hand, as you say, he's born, you know, the one thing we know about him at the beginning, he's born to a man of the house of Levi or the married a Levite woman. So impeccable, uh, impeccable genealogy. On the other hand, not only is he, is he brought up in the Egyptian palace, that's true, and that's very complicated. He has an Egyptian name. I don't, I don't know, or I probably said we talked about this. Okay, he has an Egyptian name. Um, I mean, we, we didn't know this. We didn't know this until about the 19th century when we, dis when we rediscovered the Egyptian language. Uh, but Moshe uh, is simply the name, the word meaning born of. Uh, it also means child, uh, and it's it's part of a lot of names like Thutmoses, uh, born of Toth. Uh, he was a major pharaoh in the 15th century. Ramses is Ra Moses, born of Ra. Uh, in other words, there are many names. It's born of a god, born of a god. Uh, Moshe alone, Moshe alone, the name Moses alone. Uh, it's a little bit surprising. Should be born of someone. It's not impossible to, to speculate that actually his name was something Moshe, something Moses, uh, but that the Torah or he at some point in his life decided that he didn't want to have a name with, the, with an Egyptian god in it. Uh, it was, uh, you know, like when kids go to Israel and they, they're no longer Kevin, now they're uh, Chaim or whatever. <laughs> um, so this is a little bit more extreme, right? <laughs> his name is... is Toth Moses, born of Toth, the god of Toth, the god Toth, uh, when he becomes the leader of B'nai Israel, he might say, you know what, <laughs> uh, maybe I shouldn't have an Egyptian god name in my, in my name, and maybe he just strips it out and calls himself uh, just Moshe. And this is totally speculative, obviously. I don't, I don't know exactly what, uh, what happened. But, uh, but already in the late 19th century, the Nitziv, uh, Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin, the Rosh Hashiva of Velazhin, in his commentary on Chumash, says that he has now learned from someone in Germany, he, hasn't, he gives a name, like Rabbi Ephraim of Beheim, I don't know who this is, 
Uh, we learn that Moshe is an Egyptian word for child, and that this makes perfect sense. But he, of course, addresses the key question. What's the key question that has to be asked then? If that's true. Well, that, I mean, about the name is true, but in the story, why? How is the name Moses explained? Exactly, and that's the Hebrew etymology, right? That's the Hebrew word, Moshe. Uh, so then, right? So then, it doesn't fit contextually all that well. It's true. Uh, so then, it says. Uh, that's okay, the Torah often gives folk etymologies for names. Um, and so his real name was Moshe because of the Egyptian side, but the Torah often gives sort of Hebrew explanations for names for the purpose of the narrative, which are not actually where the name came from. Which is actually an important, I mean, that's, a very, that's something worth thinking uh, more about. But for our purposes, I think what's interesting is that the name then already encapsulates uh, a complicated identity. You know, as we'd say, he's given an Egyptian name, that's what he has, but but the story gives him a Hebrew name, right? And as the story says, actually, he's, actually the name Moshe is Hebrew. Um, so again, I don't want to go over things that were already discussed, but let me just uh, say one more thing about the name. So Moshe is also contextually inappropriate, right? You just said to some extent. What's, what's inappropriate about it? Because it, it, it's the, it's the um, active versus passive. Yeah, exactly. Not exactly. Moshe means the one who draws. Right, the drawer of the water. Right, the in the story, drawn. he's the one who is drawn. So already some of the Rishonim, even Ezra says he should have been Mashui, yeah. the one who is drawn. Yes. Um, but what's interesting, and, and this is I think really important again for his identity, is that later on in the, in the story, already in chapter 2, and then certainly later on, he is the one who draws from the water. Right? He's the one who draws the water later in the chapter, and he's the one who draws the Israelites from the water uh, down in 1415. Uh, so again, I think the name, the name has a lot going on, going on right? It, it has the Egyptian basis, but it also has not just a Hebrew etymology, but a Hebrew etymology that, that really speaks to much of what he's about to do. Uh, so the name already encapsulates the, the complexity of his, of his identity. Sorry, Lovely. It just occurred to me, Hashem changes Abraham's name, and gives Yaakov Israel. And here is someone who is able to speak to Hashem. He's ready all the time, and his name isn't changed. Yeah, uh, it's a great point. It's a great point. Yeah, yeah. My mom told me Moses was Egyptian, and when I was in school, I went to private school. The history teacher said he was an Egyptian with a social conscience. Uh-huh. So I came at it from the other than most of the class, or uh, that's how I learned it first. That way, and then to have this, uh, what what my people believe, superimposed makes it even That's more interesting. It's actually very interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I think the point about the names is actually it's a great point um, because you're right. It's, you know, Avram's name is changed, but doesn't not in an ethnic way. I mean, it doesn't change his his identity. But you have people who are changed, not um, not so much by God, but uh, you know. Joseph goes down to Egypt, and Pharaoh gives him an Egyptian name, right? Tzafnat Paneah, whatever that, that, that's presumably not the Hebrew word, uh, it's not a Hebrew word, that is it some sort of Egyptian, uh, uh, Egyptian name, An, Ayin Nun Chet, it means life in, uh, in Egyptian. You know that sign, uh, people wear necklaces with the An sign. Uh, anyway, so that's, that's apparently the last part of his name. Um, Later on, Daniel and his three friends at the beginning of the book of Daniel are, have Hebrew names, Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Those are all nice Hebrew names. But they get to Babylon, and the king gives them, gives them all sorts of uh, new Babylonian names. 
So names, it's true that elsewhere in the Bible, your name is an ethnic marker. Uh, now it's interesting, again, that Joseph, we're told he has a new name, but for the rest of the book, what's he actually called? Joseph. No, the Torah refuses to call himself Nathanael, right? May I have to assume? Never mentioned again, yeah. It's amazing. I mean, you have to assume that in the court, you know, when Pharaoh called him in, he would call him that, but, but the Torah, you know, refuses to mention it. Uh, the book of Esther is another good example, right? Because uh, it's, actually the, it's actually the opposite case. So Yosef had the Hebrew name. We know he has an Egyptian name, but it's never used. Esther, we know she has a Hebrew name, right? Hadassah. But that's actually mentioned only once, uh-huh. right? And Esther, which is a Persian name, or let's assume it's a Persian name, um, that's what's used throughout, no matter what. I mean, no one ever calls her Hadassah. So you actually have to ask the other question. Why do we even bother, why do they bother telling us that her name is Hadassah? Uh, and maybe the answer is, you know, just to tell us that there's complexity of identity going on here. That she does have a Hebrew name, she does have a Persian name. For Esther, she's Persian. I mean, that's who she is for the rest of the book. She's just not Hadassah. You know, no, one, no one thinks of her as Hadassah. Uh, Yosef, the Torah at least thinks of him as Yosef throughout whether you know, the Egyptians would have thought of it. But I think you're, I think you're certainly right that Moshe uh, is very striking then. Because Moshe uh, has what we would say is Egyptian name. I mean, the point is that early readers of the Torah presumably knew that also. Right? <clears throat> it's only for that middle you know, 2,500 years or so that we forgot. <laughs> uh, none, of the, none of the medieval commentators know that Moshe is an Egyptian name. They just don't know. They don't know Egyptian. Uh, the Torah gives it a Hebrew etymology. So how could they know? I mean, there's, there's no... There's no way to know. It's in the 19th century. That's why the Nitziv, in the late 19th century, he knows from this German guy who finds out, you know, whatever, after Champollion in the 1820s, that uh, Egyptian's been deciphered and Moseh means child. But, uh, but until then, no one, no one knows. But, uh, but of course, uh, that's, that's unfortunate. <laughs> I don't think we have to worry about it. It's just unfortunate. But I think your point's a great point. So Moshe... Uh, I, I, you know, I, I, I think it's intentional. I think well, that's, that's a lot of the identity issues that um, I want to talk about in the next few minutes. And Moshe's identity is is not totally stripped of one and moves to the other. Uh, even though, you know, in a, in a sense, that's obviously true. But part of the reason he's able to be Moshe Rabbeinu, the leader of Israel, is that he's Moshe the Egyptian. Uh, that's that's actually you know key to knowing who he was. I think it's really interesting. Um, that his name represents the tension in his life between his dual identities, but it also interestingly connects to water, that, you know, he is in the water, Mm -hmm. he's rescued from water, and then he leads the rescue of the Jewish people through the water, but it's actually his demise at the Mm -hmm. end of the story, that whole issue with the rock and the water, that that's a place where... Things go a little That's a great point, because it's again a question of him drawing out the water inappropriately that time. I mean, one time he, he does. Like not but, passive. But uh, right, right, exactly. The active. His actual name is the one who draws out water, and he does it you know, in chapter two appropriately, and that's, you know, we'll talk about it in a second. But you're right. One time he does it inappropriately, and when he, I don't know, that's a, I don't know exactly how to formulate it, but when he abuses the power of his name, then suddenly he can no longer no longer cross that last body of water. Uh, that's a great point. I don't, I'm not exactly sure how to put it all together, but I think you're right to, to put it all in the mix. Uh, it seems to all be hovering, hovering through his, sort his of life. It like the, the tension between the identities gets played out in that scene where it's not working. That tension 
doesn't have a resolution of mm. positive. Oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. Um, all right, so let's. So that's the first ten, 10 verses. So we have his name, we have a little bit of his birth, we have something to expect. Right? We expect greatness out of him. We're not exactly sure, sure how it's all going to play out. Uh, and then we get, then we get basically three short stories about about Moshe. Um, there's one. The first one's a little bit more complicated. I don't want to go over stuff that everybody sober already did. Um, so we'll just say. So briefly, the three short stories. One is he sees two Israelites fighting and he intervenes. The other, I'm sorry. <laughs> First is he sees an Egyptian beating an Israelite and he intervenes. Then he sees two Israelites fighting and he intervenes. And then, dot, 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 because he runs away. Then he sees Midianites oppressing Midianites and he intervenes again. Right? So three stories where he sees something and he intervenes uh, time after time. Now, I think there's something important about the progression of these stories. First of all, let's just say, look, by the end of this chapter, or by the beginning of chapter three, Three. How old is Moses? Do you know? Doesn't say exactly, but it's not hard to figure out because chapter three is going to lead into him being sent back to Egypt, right? How long does that process take? Let's say a year. Uh, then what happens after a year? There's the Exodus, right? All the plagues and so on. Okay, let's just say a year, just to, as much time as we could possibly make it. Um, after the the Exodus, what do we know about the chronology after the Exodus? Forty years in the wilderness, and then Moses dies. How old is he when he dies? One twenty. So that means Exodus is when he's eighty, right? So this is what he's seventy-nine, eighty, around there. Like I'll just say eighty for as a round note. He's not a kid, exactly. And this is by the end of chapter two. Now chapter two, uh, we'll put the last three verses. We'll come to in a minute. But the first twenty-two verses, twenty-two verses, not a very long time. The first ten of which are taken up by his birth and and uh, saving. Now we have twelve verses that get us essentially from being a little child who was just weaned to being 80 years old, right? So, I don't know, 75 years, 77 years are covered in these, in these 12 verses or so. So what does that, what does that mean? Well, that's not crazy. I mean, we've seen the book of Genesis fly by and we've had you know, thousands of years fly by and we have you know, decades in between stories. So, okay, it's not, it's not an aberration within biblical narrative. Biblical narrative skips massive amounts of, of time. Uh, but what it does do is make us realize that whatever is told here, this is crucial to understanding Moses' biography. Because 77 years are being summarized in 10 verses, three little episodes, and then, one, uh, and then his marriage and child. There must be something about these three little anecdotes that, that's really important to know. Obviously, a lot of things happened to him in 77 years. So what's with these three anecdotes? Why are these three anecdotes in particular that say, this is what you need to know about him? And Torah says, uh, I'm going to tell you about his life. Here's three stories. They're two verses each. They're incredibly short, but here's what you need to know. Well, Sorry. the fact that he was immersed in Egyptian culture in the palace for all of those years, and yet it didn't take. Ah, okay. So first of all, right, I mean, we should just say, we don't, actually don't know when in this 75 years these stories are. So it could have been any time from, you know, like he's already, uh, it says he grew up. So it's any time from, I don't know, late teenage years to... I don't know, 60, 65, who knows? I have no idea. I have no way of judging. I mean, at some point in this, in this time period. What were you going to ask? Well, also, first of all, um, age in, in that time must not have meant the same thing it does today. I mean, today, when we think about somebody who's 65, they're like a retirement age. But maybe, maybe 65 at that time, maybe he was much healthier and younger uh, as a person. Anyway, 
I don't know what to say about that. I mean, I, uh, certainly in Genesis, the ages are, yeah, you know, yeah, I mean, puzzling. I don't know, you know, they're very exact. Uh, the, the arithmetic is very exact. Um, so it's hard to just say they're sort of exaggerated in the sense of like, oh, you know, I'm, you know a thousand years. Like it's, it's not round numbers. They're, they're sort of, yeah. but, but there is something that obviously doesn't make sense. I mean, it's hard to imagine that 4,000 years ago they were... They figured out how to live to 180, and then we forgot. Uh, but to say that in in, uh, in Egypt, you know, we have like Admea Vesrim, right, the yes. traditional blessing, like you should live to 120. Yeah. Uh, in Egypt, the stereotype of the number that meant someone lived a ripe old age was 110. That was the. Uh, so who lives 110? Joseph. Joseph, exactly. Uh, Joseph the Egyptian, right, the Egyptian prince, does live to 110. So that, that really makes you think, like, maybe there was something stylized about these numbers. I mean, it lives to 110. In Mesopotamia, maybe, it's 120. Maybe for sure it was <laughs> Maybe for sure. Uh, in Mesopotamia, it was 120. Now, Moses is not a Mesopotamian, but it's not, not strange that in the Torah, there, you know, 120 is the other key uh, age of complete life. Um, I don't know. I don't know what to, what to do with the number. The numbers are really uh, somewhat puzzling. But, uh, but already in Moses' generation, everyone does seem to have much more normal lifespans than back in the ages of the patriarchs. Here people are not living hundreds of years anymore. The point that, that we made with, with Rabbi Silver about these episodes is that it shows his uh, readiness or preparedness for leadership, uh, you know, for, for Nebuah to be a prophet. You know, that he's because he that he's able to that he's concerned with people that he has yeah yeah I think that's wonderful if you see something say something <laughs> okay right I mean he really you know this is an example of social conscience right okay so I think that's I think that's great I think that's exactly right I was going to say what you said about the social conscience I think what he got from the Egyptian Right? But, uh, 
Right? He saw an Egyptian beating an Israelite of his brothers. So he acted. So I don't know if this, I, I, I as a reader, I don't know if that means that he has a, a finely tuned sense of right and wrong. He's seeing his own brother being beaten by someone who is, he's found out at some point is not his brother. So he acts on that. Right. We don't know when he becomes, when he knows. When did he acquire Yes, this is actually a very good question. I, it's not a question. The statement that we. Right. Right. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great point. Uh, clearly, at this point, he knows who his who his brethren are, but uh, not fair half. Right. Exactly right. Uh, I mean, there are there are. I'm tempted to say this simple answer. Um, at least in Egyptian art, Canaanites are always drawn uh, as lighter skinned than Egyptians. Uh, it might have been the most obvious thing in the world, uh, which would also go back to the to the uh, when uh, the daughter of Pharaoh opens the basket and says, "Oh, it's, an, it's a Hebrew child." Uh, it might have been the easiest thing in the world. Right. Well, 100. percent So it's possible. I mean, like you said, we we don't know, and the story makes no mention of it. Uh, Alright, but in that case, that first anecdote, maybe it's ethnic loyalty, I don't really know. The second story makes it harder though, because now it's the Israelites fighting Israelites. At this point, there's no particular loyalty to one or the other, and in this case, we're told exactly why he, why he uh, intervened. But Yomer Larasha, right, he says to the wicked one, why are you beating your fellow? In other words, he's speaking to a wicked person, so he's motivated by a sense of, of that person's a wicked person, I need to stop that person from being a wicked person. But still, it's, one might say, it's still to protect one of his brothers. After all, there's a wicked Israelite and an innocent Israelite. He protects the innocent Israelite from the wicked Israelite. Uh, even though it's more complicated than protecting an innocent Israelite from an Egyptian. But the third story takes that all apart. Okay? He runs away to Midian. He sees Midianite, uh, Midianite shepherds uh, oppressing, in a different sense, not beating, but oppressing the daughters of the priests of Midian. He doesn't know who these people are. He has no loyalty to them whatsoever. He's never met them. It's unlikely that he knows that it's the priest of Midian. He, he has no, no sense of who these people are at all. So here he intervenes. Here we know exactly what's going on. Here now, now it's clear. Now it's clear what you said. That he's motivated not by ethnic loyalties, not by I mean, Israelites have to protect the Israelites, but there are good people, there are innocent people, and there are people who do bad things to innocent people, and you must stop the bad people from doing it, bad things to innocent people. That seems to be what's at the root of everything now. Now we go back and say, oh, so when there's the Egyptian Israelite, I wasn't that he was protecting the Israelites. It was that there was a, a person beating another person. I have to stop that person. Now, there is no story of the other, other way around, right, of an Israelite beating an Egyptian. Uh, but uh, I'm not sure that, I have my suspicions, but I'm not sure that we know what, what Moses would do. What if he went out and saw an Israelite being an Egyptian? Now you'd say, this doesn't make any sense. Slaves, not that. Okay, that's true. But what would he have done? It seems like, Look, his, his sense of justice, his sense of, of right and wrong is, is finely tuned and it's not targeted at certain groups as opposed to other groups. He's interested in protecting innocent people from people who oppress them. If there's an Israelite beating an Egyptian, he'd probably intervene there also. It's really not about Israelites and Egyptians, and I know that from that third story. Midianites versus Midianites, he'll intervene there also. He has nothing to do with Midian. He is not motivated by a sense of who I am, that's my kind of person, but just by right and wrong. 
Well, there's also a hint to his separateness from his Jewish brethren in his assertiveness. I mean, we know something about his character at this point. He's not lived the life of a slave. He's not afraid right. to act. Right. This is, you know, he has the impulse to do it, and he feels empowered to do it. Yeah, I think that's great. Um, I think that's you know, not surprising, given who, how he grew up, but I think that's, that seems to be totally true. Um, and I guess as a prince of the palace, um, an Egyptian taskmaster is like that, has a low status. Well, I mean, it's, it seems... Not like we, the ruling class of Egyptians, even though all... Right, but remember that when Pharaoh does hear about it, Moses has to run for his life. So he doesn't seem to have impunity. Um, I mean, he acts with impunity, but he doesn't actually have the uh, protection of the law. Uh, again, you know, there's a lot that we don't know. You know, Pharaoh, Pharaoh actually thought this child should have been killed a long time ago, um, assuming that he knows that he's a, a Hebrew boy who was found in the river. Um, so is he, you know, resenting this throughout, and now just, you know, now is an opportunity. We really have no idea. Um, and again, we don't, you know. The dynamic is very strange. <laughs> I mean, you know, the father said that the child has to be killed. The daughter went out and saved the child and brought him back to the palace. I mean, what? How did this go over? Like, what was dinner conversation that night? Like, oh, by the way, uh, I have a new child. <laughs> he's six years old. <laughs> right? oh, he's very light skinned. Where, where did he come from? <laughs> oh, it's complicated, Dad. <laughs> Great. Great. Okay, so on We don't have to know necessarily all these details. We just have to see that this is the time. Yeah, you're right. I mean, you're right. We're, and that goes back to the, the point about this being very, very telescope. I mean, we have 80 years and 22 verses. We don't know a huge amount of, of biographical details. I mean, there's a massive amount that we would love to know that we just don't know. Yeah. What we do know tells us basically one key thing. Well, I say two key things, but they're two sides of the same coin. So he's, as you all, as you said, you know, it's very finely tuned sense of right and wrong, activism in, in uh, protection of the innocent, protection of the weak. But there's a flip side to that. If you ask him, who do you belong to? What people are you from? So we get to 16. I'm sorry, we get to uh, 19. Right? And uh, the, the girls come back to their father. And they say, they say and he says, hey, how you... <laughs> How did you get here so fast? Which is a little bit strange, because it makes it sound like they always took a very long time, because every day they were oppressed by these shepherds, and the dad was just like, go, every day. And it's like, oh, how did you get back so fast? He said, well, an Egyptian man, Egyptian man saved us. Wow, okay, so to an outsider, he's clearly Egyptian, based on, I assume, the dress, you know, the way he, the way he looks, the way he carries himself, his speech. Uh, what language does Moshe speak? Uh, unlikely that he's speaking Midianite, although you know it's not implausible that Midianite would have been similar to Hebrew. But uh, how would you know Hebrew? Maybe for the first few years, when he was being raised by his mother, he would you know, remember a little bit. Uh, but if it's been again, I don't know how long. It's been 75 years since he's spoken Hebrew. Uh, yeah, I mean the languages that I haven't practiced in two years are like way out of my head. I don't remember anything. So 75 years, it's hard to. Hard to imagine. Maybe he stammered out some words in, in an Egyptian accent. I have no idea what exactly, but, but it's clear to them that he's an Egyptian man. But what about his own perception? Well, he very quickly, and again, this, you know, the, the, the remarkably fast pace of this story, um, Ruel says, bring him in so he can eat with us. 
Moshe comes in, marries Tzipora, has a son, right, all in uh, half a verse, uh, names Gershom, because he says, I've been a stranger in a foreign land. <coughs> Which foreign land? Which one is he thinking of? That's where we love Joseph. Oh, okay, great. Right. I mean, from our perspective, he's always been a stranger in a foreign land, right? He's actually never had a homeland. Uh, how did he feel? I don't know. I don't, I don't know which one he has in mind. It's not in the present tense, right? He says, Ger Hayiti Beres Melchria. I was a stranger in a foreign land, uh, which makes it sound like it's, like it's Egypt, but it might also be, um, it might also be the, the uh, I've always been a stranger in a foreign land. I've never been not a stranger in a foreign land. I've never really been at home, right? Especially if, as you said, depending on when he found out about his identity. But if he knows, if he's always known that he's an Israelite, so he's an Israelite growing into the Egyptian palace, then he goes out to see his brothers, it turns out that gets in trouble with the Egyptians. He runs away to Midian, he's identified as an Egyptian. Who is this guy? So the flip side of him having, of him being motivated by right and wrong, is that that's all he's motivated by. He has no particular sense of identity, he has no particular sense of community at this point. Who is he? He's a stranger in a foreign land. He has no loyalties to anyone, I mean he has loyalties to his wife, but not, not ethnic loyalties. He has I assume doesn't have any loyalties to the priest of Midian at this point. I mean, he does again as a family member, but not as a member of the tribe. His loyalties are personal. He is who he is. He's had to carve out his own identity by force because he's never had an identity that he could be comfortable with. And so what he's done is has this, this very powerful sense of right and wrong, but it's, it's, in, it's undirected. It's wherever there's wrong in the world, he will act. There's like a, you know, a superhero, but a superhero is, is, is tragic in a sense, right? He has, no, he has no group that he identifies with. This is very interesting philosophically to me. I, I never thought of it before. The fact that he never is at home in his whole life. Right, that's Because he true. never makes it into the promised land. That's a good point. And yeah. he's like, so he's like the universal... Uh, right, he goes from this, universal good so I, like literally wandering in the wilderness. He's the universal gear. Right. Universal care, but also the, 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 the universal yeah. person who sees wrong and right in the universal life. Right. 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 I think that's very right. He's a, he's a and that's why they say that the Torah was given in, 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 the, in the wilderness. Right. Yeah, that it doesn't belong. That's, to that's a great point. Israel. That's a great point. And I think your point is uh, the, 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 really two sides of the same coin, right? Is that he, he needs to be this kind of person. Because that way, he really sees the world for what it is. So he sees right and wrong. And we all see right and wrong. And we all have our loyalties that cloud right and wrong. And you know, if we stripped away those loyalties, you would see it differently. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. We need to have our loyalties. It's important for us, and it's important for the world to function that we have our loyalties. But Moshe, by force of his, of his childhood, has no sense of who I am. So all he sees in the world is you know, maybe clearer than other people. Oppressors and oppressed, and he works for the oppressed uh, against the oppressors. That's that's what he sees. He sees it better than anyone else because he doesn't have a sense of well, that's but he's my brother, so maybe I shouldn't act against him. And you know, well, it's not my business. He has no qualms about not being his business. Somehow, somehow he'll intervene anywhere. There's a sociological theory, and I don't know who wrote it because it's been a long time since I studied it, but it's called an, uh, about the outsider. And the great discoveries and great things always come from outsiders, in a sense, because they're not taken up 
with the point of view of a particular. All the assumptions. Right. I, I, the, the, the sociologist thing begins with S, but I just can't remember who it is. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so that's that birth of his child. Right? Uh, first of all, literarily, that's verse 22. That's the end of this unit. That's the end of our very, very short biography of Moses, which has begun with the birth of Moses, and now ended with the birth of Gershom. And again, I don't know how old Moses is. He could be 30 at this point, and now shepherding for the next 50 years. Um, we, we don't know. Uh, it's open-ended at this point. But, uh, but this, whatever number of years, has now, been, has now been summarized in a very neat package that went from his own birth to the birth of his child, and it was literally a generation. Right? In terms of him, well, at this point, we're a little disappointed. We had reason to believe at the beginning that there was something great going to come out of this person. Uh, he's going to do something. But in the meantime, what we've seen is that he is a remarkable person. I mean, we had his amazing senses, uh, instincts, intuitions, willingness to act, activism. It is fantastic traits. But what he's never learned, what he's never had the opportunity to learn, is how to focus that for an actual cause. Right? So he's a sort of unfocused sense of justice. And wherever he goes, he sees injustice and he acts for the, for the, to, to, to uh, correct the wrongs. And he does a great job with that. But, but this, in the end of the day, you can't make, you can make little things better by doing this. But in grand things, grand things need a whole different sort of leadership. And you mentioned that he, you know, he hasn't really learned leadership. And I think that's exactly right. He hasn't learned any leadership. Leadership isn't something that you just, you see you're wrong and you react. That might help right now. Right now, I'm going to save someone who's actually being beaten up. That's, that's an important thing to do. But you want to accomplish something that's going to change a nation or a world in a longer-lasting way. It's very rare that one particular reactive uh, action is going to do anything like that. For that, you need planning. You need forethought. You need to lay the groundwork. You need to be there for a prolonged period of time. And Moshe has shown us nothing uh, that would suggest that he is capable or interested in doing anything like that. That's just not what you see. We see three, three episodes in which his, we appreciate his sense of justice, but he's very reactive, he's very impulsive, uh, and he saves people in the here and now. And that's fantastic. I don't want to criticize it. It's just not what we would need from a national leader. A national leader needs something, maybe he needs that uh, also, but he also needs the ability to, to work patiently. Uh, and this is something that's going to plague Moshe for the rest of the story. Uh, his patience is constantly going to be tested. Even when he is going to be the leader of the nation, there are going to be times that he just can't handle it anymore. Uh, and he says, look, you know, there's a clear right thing to do. I don't understand why people are doing the wrong thing. What's, what's wrong with you people? Uh, the right thing is, is in front of you. Do the right thing. The wrong thing is, it really mad, maddens him. Didn't he, growing up in the palace, didn't he, didn't he learn leadership in the palace? And number two, when Yitro was a, uh, was a big priest uh, in the Egyptian courts, and when he left, he was the, like the mayor or the governor of the area, living with, with Yitro, bless you. Didn't he learn that? You know what I mean? So didn't he have good examples of leadership? Um, well, the first, the first part is in Palestine, again, we just don't know anything about the palace. I have no, I have no idea. It could be that he had leadership training seminars and, and was lousy at them. Um, I don't know, I just, you know, have no idea. Uh, the second part, though, I think that's actually key. Remember that the first line that we'll get to in a minute, in chapter 3, is that Moses was a shepherd. And when you think about shepherding, that is 
not human leadership, but that actually takes a lot of the characteristics that until now we've actually had no reason to think he possessed. Um, so that I think, you know, I don't know whether it's Ichiro teaching him or just uh, a new reality that he's settled into, but I think you're right that we do, uh, we do see a transition in him in the second stage, but right now we're not up to that. Uh, right now, you know, Paul is at 222, has a chafet, uh, and we've seen a little biography of Moshe, we've seen it come full circle. You see in the text there's now a parsha break, right? that was all one story in the Torah, now there's a paragraph break, and we've come to a pause, and we'll see in a second what it goes on to, uh, the story, story ends. If you ask right now, you say, well, is Moshe fit to be a leader? You say, well, I mean... There's no real way of knowing. I see that he has some good instincts, some good intuitions, but he's certainly not ready at this point. I mean, if you put him in front of a nation, uh, I don't even know what he would do. I mean, he would just you know, not react well. We've seen, we've seen no indication that he knows how to react well. And this is a real pause. This is where the pause is. It's a real pause, exactly. a long time after that. Right, exactly. Uh, my uh, Harvey. Right, right. My and so that, I mean, so there you have the break. Exactly. Which could be, what is the long term? Is that 40 years? Uh, it could be 40 years. I, I mean, it really is, uh, we, again, we don't know how old Moshe was when he ran. two years. Um, you have to check when Yamim Rabim shows up and whether we know how long they, you know, whether we could yeah, check how, but it certainly sounds like a long break. And I would say, look, even if we don't know exactly how long it was, literally, the Torah says, now, long pause, right? And the long pause, uh, you know, whatever that actually consisted of, whether it was five years or 55 years, and that's also possible. He might have been 25 when he did all this, and now 55 years of shepherding, uh, you know, totally unbounded. Uh, we just don't know. But now, long pause, and that long pause in particular, literally, again, is with regard to Moshe, right? In other words, Moshe's story is now on hold. We saw this beginning, now he's on hold. Now, who comes into the story? Turns out, sort of reminds us, there's been one character we haven't heard anything about. Actually, I haven't heard anything about the entire book of Exodus. Who's that? God. God hasn't been in the book of Exodus yet. Um, the only thing we heard about him was that the, um, the midwives feared God. Uh, but feared God is a, is a very <coughs> bland term for being just being, just being good people. Uh, you know, when Abraham goes to Grar, he says... Uh, I didn't know that I didn't know if you would murder me and steal my wife because I didn't know if there was fear of God here. It's not a deep religiosity. It's just basic goodness. So they were good people. So that's the only mention of God that we've had so far. Uh, God has just not been a character in the Book of Exodus yet. We had a story in chapter one about the about Pharaoh and the oppression and the uh, increasing servitude uh, and the midwives. Uh, we had a story in chapter two so far of Moses and God has just not been a character in the story. At the end of chapter 2, we get a God. Not yet. What we actually get is, as you said, The king of Egypt died. Now, why do we need to know that the king of Egypt died? Well, one thing in particular, right? What, what, what do we know about this king of Egypt? He doesn't like us very much. <laughs> he doesn't like us very much, right. Um, yeah, I mean, he's the one who... Right, exactly. He's the one of the, of the oppression. Um... So there's going to be a new king. We also know, right, so that's vis a vis chapter 1. Vis a vis chapter 2, what did you say? Exactly. So we also need to know that Moses can now theoretically come back to Egypt, right, assuming that arrest warrants expire with the death of the king, which is 
I guess, sort of not entirely clear, but seems like uh, an assumption that everyone uh, everyone makes. But the last time a new king came to power, he forgot. So right. the possibility that this guy could forget too, that everything is lost once that guy right. dies and it's a whole new order. Right, yeah, it's possible. Uh, so here we don't even, we're not even told explicitly about the new king, although obviously there is a new king. Uh, but whoever this new king is now the third king of the book of Exodus, right? We had the first king who died at the very beginning, and then there's a new king of the oppression, and now we have a third king. This is going to be the pharaoh of the Exodus. We know that. He doesn't know that yet. Uh, I just want, this is sort of Derek Haddad, but I just was wondering, which, which body of uh, Midrashic literature would try to fill in these gaps? Uh, who wanted to read Midrash on on all of these gaps in yeah. life. You know, That's a good question. I, I mean, there's, I guess, three things you could look at. So one would be uh, Shemot Rabbah, okay. um, which has definitely been translated into English also. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, oh, well, we know, you know, if, if you go to the Midrash, there's, sorry, yeah? Uh, the Mitsuda, if you read the Mitsuda, uh, Rabbi Ari, he fills it in, he says that Moshe was a king, he took a wife, which is the Kush Later on, Mary says, those about mm. the Shrine woman. And he goes to Shane and Ever. So that's an interesting, if you want to relate that to Yeah, a lot, right. Lots of, lots of, uh, right, so I was going to say three things. So one is Shemot Rabbah. So what we now know is that Midrash Rabbah, you know, if you go to the Midrash and find Midrash Rabbah, which usually comes to the set, has Bereshit Rabbah, Shemot Rabbah, Vikra. So these are actually originally different works. So Bereshit Rabbah was not edited at the same time as Shemot Rabbah. Shemot Rabbah turns out to be a pretty late Midrash, which is actually, for our purposes, maybe even more useful, because it collects more. Um, it's not a classical midrash. Uh, Shemot Rabbah is only one. Uh, the other one, the other sort of old midrash that goes in a, in a running sort of commentary style is Midrash Tanhuma, uh, which also has um, you know, whole, whole sections devoted to these chapters. And then the third possibility is, as I said, to find a leader commentary, like Rashi or someone else, who extracts from the Midrash and comments on particular verses, uh, you know, what they think is relevant from the Midrash. Um, but, uh, but that's not a running Midrash. There are lots of other ones also. Pick here's Rabbi Eliezer. I mean, there's a lot of okay. Midrash literature. They all talk about Depending on what this is, they all, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. They talk about what? Chapter 2 and Exodus. Oh, right, exactly. Okay. Exactly. Um, okay. So, okay, so what do we have? So, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned from, the, from their work and they cried out. Now, who did they cry to? Presumably God. Hey, so presumably God, but of course, the text doesn't say anything about who they cried to. And it actually makes it sound like they just cried. Why are they crying? It's not a directed cry, please help us. It's a cry. They're groaning, they're crying, right? They're screaming. They just can't take it anymore. They're not in particularly expecting anyone to step in. This is a scream of anguish. Um, I mean, groaning is, is a, you know, I think that captures it nicely. You don't groan to anyone. You just groan when it, when it hurts. But, for the first time, Batal Shavatam Elohim in but their cry for help from the work rose up to God. And that actually makes it pretty clear. They weren't crying to God, but for the first time, we, for the first time, hear that God is paying attention. The cry rises up to God. And now God, I'll say he gets active, but active in a sort of uh, 
interesting way. God heard their cries. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God saw the Israelites. And God knew. So four verbs that God is the subject of. Remember, God hasn't been in the story at all. So this is already very, this is very important. <laughs> God has to do something in order for the story to change. God is now doing something. Although, in a sense, he's not doing anything. Right? What has he actually done? He heard, he remembered, he saw, he knew. So these are active verbs in the grammatical sense, but they're, they're, they're all verbs of cognition. Right? They're all verbs of, of his senses. Doing something is not yet what he's up to. Is active in the sense of internally responding, uh, but he hasn't actually done anything yet to change anything. But of course, for our, you know, I, you know deal, so to speak, uh, it sounds like you, you, know, you wake the monster, right? The monster's been sleeping, the dragon's been sleeping, and the dragon hasn't actually done anything yet, but, but the eyes are flickering. And you know that once the eyes are flickering, the power here is immense. The potential is, is unbounded, and at this point, it's just a question of what's going to happen. Uh, the, the dragon has been, has been woken, uh, and God, God has been totally silent. We've watched the Israelites be oppressed. We've, uh, we've heard nothing from God. God has not done anything. We were set up from, by the book of Genesis to expect God to actually do something when the Israelites were oppressed, but he's, he's been totally absent. And this little paragraph says, okay, he's, he's awake now. But it doesn't do anything to assuage our, our doubts about what's been going on for the last few generations. God now hears. God now remembers. God now sees. God now knows. Very strongly suggesting that until now, God has actually closed the window shades and said, you know what, uh, I don't want to know what's going on. Um, and that, on the one hand, you say, well, it's not surprising. He said back in Genesis 15, he said in the brief penitentiary, that he's going to send them off because they're going to be oppressed. Uh, and so, look, what does he have to do? You know. He made the plans, he set it all up, and there's nothing to do here. Um, so I, but it's, I think it's not, uh, it's not unfair to be troubled by, uh, by God now paying attention. Um, in the course, in the context of the narrative, what we have is God, God's now waking, God's now uh, conscious and uh, contemplating what to do next. Uh, we don't know what he's going to do next. We omniscient readers do, right? I mean, this is one of the problems with reading the Bible, is that we all know what's going to happen. Um, the, uh, you know, texts are not supposed to be read that way. I mean, we, it actually undermines much of the drama of a text if we all know how it's going to turn out. Uh, and that's true in a lot of instances, especially with the more familiar stories, that much of the drama is just lost on us because we all know what's about to happen. So it's easy to sort of gloss over the points where where there should have been tension if we had not known what was about to happen. Um, but if we're reading this with, without knowing what's about to happen, um, which I'm not sure anyone in the history of the world has ever done, but uh, if, if you do, um, then, uh, then I, you know, I, I know the character of Moses, and I know to expect great things to, from him, but he's on hold, and I also know what I can't really expect from him right now. I haven't heard from God, then I hear from God, and God starts to act, but, but not actually act yet. He's... He's thinking. He's contemplating. He's he's working it out. He's starting to to think of how to how to respond to what he now knows is the problem. He knows. Okay. So now what? So we're not so surprised about what's about to come, but what's about to come is that he needs to figure out how to get Moses to actually do something for him. Mm-hmm. This is God in contrast to Moses. 
something ah, doesn't think just goes. That's a great point. Some of us have that form. Which one? <laughs> the seeing and doing something uh -huh. without thinking in Right. So I guess. Yeah. So, and that's a contrast too. That's a great and point. I once taught adult botanista, and this woman was educated to help Bible, and we had Torah study, and she said, This is disgusting. This is how the Torah begins with a brother killing a brother. That's disgusting. So, that was, I never forgot that. We could tell myself, Of right. course, we know that's how right. it starts. You know, right. but to, from somebody looking at it for the first time, yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. I, look, I think often it's true that, uh, you know, when I read commentaries or essays about the Bible, sometimes it's the, it's the most, it's the simplest observations that I just never notice because yeah. it's so familiar yeah. that I'm just blind to it. Yeah. Uh, and you're like, oh, that's, that's really remarkable. Uh, yeah, I think it's, that's totally true. Uh, you know, it's a real skill to be able to pretend I've never read this before and read it with fresh eyes, and uh, it's not, uh, it's very hard, yeah, exactly. And I think even, even if I, you know, I consciously try to do it, and despite that, you know, I'm always, I'm always enlightened by someone else's comments, you're like, oh, never, never, never hit upon that, never noticed that. Um, okay, so, so that's where we are at the end of chapter two. So we have, we have the character of Moses, which we know to some extent. We have what's been going on with God, which we know to some extent. Uh, and then we get chapter chapter 3. Is that clock right? Sorry. Is it 10.35? Yeah. Oh, well. Okay, so now we can start. <laughs> All right. Moshe hayaro'et son yitrochot no kohen midyan. Moses was shepherding the flocks of, uh, uh, of Yitro, his, uh, his chotein, the priest of Midian, and he... He led, he directed the flocks into the Midbar, Vayavor al-Har Elohim Choreva. Alright, so just a couple of little points. Uh, I mean, obviously, what's about to happen is the key point, but just a couple of little points. Um, first of all, uh, the name of Moses' father-in-law. What's the name of Moses' father-in-law? So we had it, in fact, in chapter 2. Ruel. Ruel, right. Now it's Jethro. Now it's Jethro. So the simplest possibility at this point is to simply point out that Kotain doesn't actually mean father-in-law, it means male relative by marriage. Uh, that, that's the easiest thing right now to say. Uh, it gets more complicated as we get deeper into the Torah because it turns out he has a number of different names. Um, but, uh, but certainly Ruel and Nitro might actually just be different people. Uh, in which case, um, Ruel we don't have a lot of choices about because we're told that Ruel uh, had seven daughters and, he, and Moses married one of them, so that's actually his father-in-law. Uh, Jethro, though, could have been his grandfather-in-law, could have been his brother-in-law. In other words, uh, there are actually other possibilities for who Jethro was. Uh, a re male relative by marriage, also priest of Midian. That's not so surprising. If the priesthood run, you know, hierarch, uh, runs in the family. Um, it's hereditary. So, I don't know. The, you know, it, it's very striking, because we just heard five verses ago that he had a different name. But, uh, but at this point, we might just say, Chotein just uh, is a more general term than father-in-law. Um, a midbar, just a, a point about the word. Midbar, which of course becomes a very famous word. Um, midbar comes from the, well first of all the pattern. There's a whole bunch of nouns in Hebrew that, that, are, that come from a verbal root, that come from a three-letter root with a, a me prefixed onto it. 
Um, and typically, I'll give you an example. Mizbeach. What's Mizbeach? So Zavach means what? To slaughter. To slaughter. So what's a Mizbeach? Place. The place of slaughter, exactly. And there's a whole series, there's about a dozen nouns that where it's me plus a, uh, plus a, uh, a root, where it means the place of that root happened. Now, what's the var? What's the var? But not the, so it could be, it could be that uh, in the context of the Torah, we actually might think like, oh, that's interesting, because this midbar uh, is a place of, of revelation later on. But the midbar more generally can't be the place of speech, that doesn't, doesn't make sense. But... Uh, but the var also means uh, means livestock, um, livestock, livestock, uh, grazing. Um, the verb means to graze. The noun is livestock. So midbar presumably means a place of grazing. Now, why am I saying this? It makes no sense for him to bring his sheep to the desert, right? That's that's a dumb thing to do. <laughs> uh, we, we have no reason to think that he's a bad shepherd at this point. I mean, he's, been doing this for decades. He's, he's presumably a good shepherd. He's not bringing it to the desert. What is Midbar really? Midbar means, essentially, it's not just the place of grazing. It also can mean a desert. But what it really means, it's the opposite of civilized. I was, I was going to say, it's a place where people aren't dwelling. Exactly, exactly. That's exactly right. So uh, it's actually true in Biblical Hebrew, it's true in Aramaic, that you basically have the world is divided up into two realms. The realm of civilization, of settled people, and the realm of, in Hebrew it's called Midbar, um, in uh, Aramaic, it's called Bara. Um, but uh, exactly, it's just the outside of civilization. Exactly right. What? Exactly. Right. Uh, right. Which, of course, are much bigger than they are right now. <laughs> um, this, the places, you know, if you map the world and say, you know, where where are people living, it's very small. Uh, well, much smaller. Than it is now. Even in the countries, you know, even the regions where there is civilization, still. So you have a small town of a few hundred, few thousand people, and then there's still large amounts of unsettled territory uh, outside that town. So that's Midbar. Midbar could be desert. It could be an appropriate place for for sheep. Uh, what it means is it's not anyone's personal uh, property. It's not civil, settled. It's not civilization. Uh, that's where he goes. He goes to Midbar. Now, we've never heard the word chorev before, we, as readers of the Torah. Uh, we don't know anything about chorev. Um, of course, we do know about chorev. Chorev turns out to be another name for Sinai. But uh, the, uh, the, the real immediate question is, he comes to the mountain of God, does he know that it's the mountain of God? Has it always been the mountain of God? Or is it about to be the mountain of God? And is this because of what's about to happen that, he calls, that the Torah calls it this, the mountain of God? Um, or... Or is this, you know, well known? There's a shrine there. There's a, a temple there. Uh, everyone knows there's a divine mountain. Um, in the in the story, there's no no particular answer to that. Of course, you could even say that Har Elohim doesn't actually mean mountain of God. It means divine mountain. Uh, and it was that 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 depends on well, which God do you think lives there? Uh, in retrospect, later on in Exodus, we'll say this is obviously the God of Israel who lives on this mountain, or at least visits this mountain periodically. Um, but uh, at least at this point, we might have thought, well, the Midianites had some sort of sense of this being a divine mountain. Maybe, you know, it's where the pantheon, the place where the sky meets the, the earth. Or, uh, it's hard, hard to know. Uh, but I think in context, we actually get a better sense. Yeah. I just was wondering, is there a word, is there a distinction in Hebrew between um, wilderness, you know, really, really, you know, wild places where people have never lived, and Midbar? 
Not that I, not that I recall. Okay. Not that I recall. Um, I don't know that yeah. there's any difference. No, I don't, I don't think so. Um, okay, so I think in context, what, what actually becomes clear. Look, Moshe, does he know? Well, let's read on. Then I should, then I should ask these questions. Vayirav Malach Hashem elav belabat eish mitoch asne, and a, a messenger of God appeared to him. Labat eish. Labat is presumably uh, another form of lehava, lehava, a flame. So a flame of a fire appeared to him in a flame of a fire from from within a bush, sne, vayar, and he saw vinei sne boer baish. And look, the bush was burning in fire, vasne nenu ukal, but the bush was not consumed, devoured. Vayer Moshe asurana. Moshe said, let me let me let me turn turn. Vere, let me go see it. Tamarei hagadol is there. This great vision, madua lo yivar hasne. Why is it that the snare is not actually burning? God saw that he turns to see. And God called to him from the bush. There I am. Don't come any closer. Take your shoes off of your feet. Because the place that you're standing on is sacred land, holy, holy ground. And God says, I am the God of your father, and the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, because he was afraid to look at the divine, look at God. All right, so there's a lot... A lot of little questions here that uh, uh, ideally add up to a, to a full understanding, but Rabbi Solomon might have to finish up that next week. All right, so let's, let's talk about some of the little questions. So first of all, Moses has no idea that this is a sacred place, right? So it seems. I mean, shall not take your feet off your take your shoes off your feet because you're standing on holy ground. Uh, it sounds like this is actually a revelation to him that that's news. Uh, you didn't know that. Um, taking the feet, the shoes, taking the shoes off the feet. Uh, it's actually not something that we see elsewhere. There's only one other place that we find uh, taking the shoes off uh, as a sign of there being holy ground, and that's in the book of Joshua. Um, in a story that's similar in some ways, let's flip to it for a minute, because um, it really is a close parallel, but, uh, but also, also different in some ways. It says, if you have the JPS, down on page... Um, 465 in Joshua chapter 5 and this is taking place just before just before the conquest of Jericho so just before Joshua's first first uh, military uh, battle which is not really a military battle but uh, his first, first battle and it says Joshua was standing near Jericho he looked up and saw a Halanu uh, Are you with us? Or are you with our enemies? And he said, Neither. Lo, can he start Hashem Ata? I am the uh, I am the chief of the army of God, and I have just come. Ah, okay. So Joshua says, falls on his face. Falls on his face. That always sounds silly. Um, uh, just to say that Nafal 
in Hebrew, in Biblical Hebrew, uh, doesn't just mean fall. In English, fall means unintentional, right? I think almost always. Through um, uh, himself, right? You get down. Uh, in, in this week's parsha, uh, you have uh, when, no last week's parsha. Sorry, last week's parsha. When Rivka comes back and sees Isaac, but he pulls me on Hagamah. Right? Doesn't mean she falls off like. <laughs> Which is knocked off and falls ten feet to the ground. She gets off of the camel. Uh, but Tipol can mean get down the same way it can mean to fall. So I, I know it just always sounds weird when Moses falls on his face. Like <laughs> it sounds like it's very painful. Um, it's not supposed to be painful. He gets down on his face to the ground. Vayshtachem. He bows down and he says, uh, "Wow, what, what does my lord say to his servant?" And uh, the last verse here on the top of page four sixty six. The chief of the Lord's army says to Joshua, Remove your sandals from your feet. For the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Um, so this is almost, almost verbatim the same line. Take your shoes off your feet because this is a holy place. Very, very minor, minor changes. Um, but, uh, but also complicated a little bit. Because in that case, not followed up with anything. It takes his takes the shoes off of his feet, and then the story ends, and uh, the, the angel leaves, that's it. There's no revelation after that. The, the taking the shoes off the feet was just to, just because you're standing here. Just right now, you have to take them off. You're, you're in a holy place. Um, so first of all, why, why take shoes off their feet? What's, what does that do? Again, this, those are the only two places. You know, these two places, they take shoes off their feet. This is not something that we knew from elsewhere. It's not, I mean, we have shoes taking off of, being taken off of feet elsewhere, but not for not because it's a holy place. Yeah, because, for example, you're dirty. Or it's a symbolic action that symbolizes the breaking of a, of a marital bond. I mean, there's all sorts of reasons to take a shoe off of the foot. Uh, presumably many people did it on a daily basis. That has nothing to do with us. This is particularly because you're standing in a holy place. So what, what's the connection between taking shoes off of the feet and standing in a holy place? What do you, what do you make of that? Does it make you sort of subservient or it weakens you in some way? Okay, so here's, I think, you know, one strong possibility is the sign of, of degraded position, right? I'm, yeah, humility. As I understand that in this case, I am, I am not of the stature that I deserve to be wearing shoes. Right? Now, it's hard to prove that lowly people actually didn't wear shoes. It seems intuitively true, like, you know, if you're poor, if you're a slave. There's one passage actually in, in Luke where... Uh, it uh, calls for a slave and says, uh, tell the slave to go put his shoes on, we're going outside. Uh, which people sometimes cite as evidence that slaves didn't wear shoes, which it sounds like it can't possibly be true as a sort of general statement, because shoes are actually functional. <laughs> uh, I mean, why do people wear shoes? Uh, it hurts to walk around in a rocky wilderness with no, with no shoes. Uh, we're not talking about you know, Nike sneakers uh, or boots. Uh, what, are we what are the shoes we're talking about? What do they look like? Even the sandals. I mean, I have sandals that are like, I mean, you know, I got them from uh, L.O.B. and they're they're rugged. They uh, <laughs> they protect me from. All that. We're not talking about that, right? We're talking about more or less something like a piece of leather tied onto the bottom of my foot, right? Uh, I mean, what's what's the purpose of the sandal? It's basically, look, the sand or the dirt is it's hot, it's rocky. It protects me a little bit. Uh, we're not talking about anything uh, all that all that great. Um, so you know, I assume even lowly people would have worn such things when when needed. It's hard to imagine that people just, you know, of lowly stature would wear. But symbolically, at least, I'm putting myself in lowly stature. Um, yeah. 
uh, as directly as possible. Uh, but uh, I don't know. Look, it's it's interesting. It's not explained. It's not. You know, Torah doesn't say why you stay by this holy land. I guess for for Moshe and the story for the readers, maybe it was obvious why it made intuitive sense. But um, like that. mourners also don't wear shoes, as as, as you know. Um, uh, that does seem to be. It's usually assumed to be something of you know, shoes are a luxury item, and uh, I'm now in. A, uh, I want to feel the pain. I want to feel the sorrow. So I want to. Uh, I don't want to protect myself from the discomfort of, of walking around barefoot, um, which is related in a sense to you know, a degraded status, but in a different sense. I mean, that, I think, is not directly relevant to Moses. He's not mourning anything. He's not trying to feel pain, uh, but he might want to feel humble. Sorry. So I was just thinking, I made the connection. I think in my mind, I pictured the, um, the time when Abraham has the angels come to the tent and doesn't say they took their shoes off, but he washes their feet. Right. Right. And so I'm thinking that there is this connection. We just read that Moshe is a stranger, and it's all about the gay root. Mm-hmm. And we haven't heard about God until now. And we certainly haven't heard about Moshe and God. So I just sort of think to myself, it could be a real stretch, but I just think that there is something big is going to happen in connection with God, and he's being, and we're being reminded somehow of the initial covenant that was made when Sarah is going to have this child and I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It just brings familiar to me. That's very interesting. Oh, look, I mean, especially since, as you say, in a few sentences, he's going to explicitly invoke that covenant. Um, That doesn't seem seem inappropriate, even if it's a stretch, to say, like, you know, uh, it's not not unlikely that somewhere in the... uh, in the picture, that we're remembering those stories, remembering the covenantal relationship that went all the way back. Um, yeah, if it, if it weren't explicitly said in a few sentences, I would say, well, you know, it's sort of floating, I don't know, it's a little abstract, but, but this is actually part of the point that we're going to get to in a minute. But also the Yahushua thing, that before he's about to conquer the land, that covenantal oh, thing comes back. So like feet somehow bring us back to that, that third. Interesting. I don't know. Um, oh, just a few minutes left. Okay, uh, so, so he takes his shoes off, but before he takes his shoes off, he sees a snare. What's, what's a snare? A bush. So you, I mean, I think it's fair to ask, but why, why fire? Why a bush? This is, God needs, what, what does God actually need from Moses at this point? What's the point of the, he's going to talk to him in a minute. Right, exactly. He's going to talk to him in a minute, but all he really needs right now is to is to get him, right? So you can get him in a hundred different ways. I don't know. Do something cool. <laughs> make, make something appear in the middle of the desert. I mean, do something interesting. Like, why a fire? Why a bush? What's the, what, do these, what do these do? What do you, whatever you want. What would you want to say? Days, weeks, 
months, years, and nobody paid any attention. Maybe that's what God meant. I didn't say. I mean, nobody paid attention. I think that's nice you said. I, and of course, in the desert, a fire, that's dangerous. Yeah, uh, especially if it's not a fire, it's not a desert really, right? I mean, there's actual... Oh, it's not uh, a desert, right. I mean, but, uh, right. you can imagine whatever landscape you want, but, uh, yeah. yeah, there is, there is growth there. There are yeah. sheep eating, right. eating something. Right, and that's um, dangerous. It's dangerous, 100%. And it's not, it's just burning in and of itself. Right, so, let me, let me say, first of all, just, just sort of for the record, uh, there's also, there's an equally uh, extreme possibility on the other side, uh, which Maimonides believes, which is that if you had been there, or not you, if I had been there, I wouldn't have seen anything at all. Uh, this is all internal to Moses. Uh, and this is a vision that he experiences, uh, and that it's, it's really not a physical reality at all. Um, I'm afraid I'm going to have to leave this forever, so we're to puzzle out. But let me just put one thing on the table, building on what you said, though. Because I think you're right. It's not just that they're that we don't know how long the bush has, has been there. Uh, which is, we don't know, although verse 2 does say the, the messenger of God appeared to him in the flame of a fire in a, in a snail, which makes it sound like it just happened, but it, it could have been a long time ago. But more importantly, I think you're absolutely right, because verse 4 says, and God saw that he had turned to look, and God said to him from the bush, Moses, Moses. In other words, it seems to be a prerequisite. First, God has to make sure that you're going to turn to look, and then, and then he'll speak. He could have just t- started talking, right? You know, so don't, don't wait to see if he turns around. Just sit in the bush and go, Moses, Moses, and then I'll obviously turn around. Uh, but no, that's, that's a prerequisite. He has to turn to look. So I, I feel bad uh, sort of putting a, an undeveloped thought out there. But let me put out the following thought, and then I'll tell Rabbi Silver that I put this out there and see what he wants to do with it uh, next week. Um, but uh, the thought would be that in Moses' own character, uh, we have a little bit of reason to think that he's actually changed a lot because he's been a shepherd for a very long time. Shepherds are the antithesis of the reactive, impulsive superhero that we saw in chapter 2. This guy literally wanders around with sheep all day. Um, you know, not that there's no action. Every so often, there's a wolf, there's a lion, there's whatever. You know, we know from David. Yeah, I'm sure there was uh, adventures in his shepherding. Uh, shepherding life, but, uh, but to be a shepherd uh, means you need to be able to say, there's things under my care, and I'm not actually enthralled by what's happening right now, uh, but I need to care for them, and I need to bring them to the appropriate place, and I need to think about, well, what are their needs, and where were we yesterday, and what's going to be the appropriate place to go tomorrow, and, uh, and I need to plan ahead, and I need to care for others in a systematic, sustained way, rather than just, rather than just uh, impulsive and reactive. And I think that a number of people have, have made the point, and I think this is absolutely true, that it's no accident that many of the great biblical heroes are shepherds. Um, that's a character trait that is, is treasured in the, uh, in the Bible for a number of reasons. One is the caring, uh, the leadership, in a sense. Uh, the other uh, is that it's outside of human society. Uh, and there's, there's still some of human society. So a shepherd, yes, is caring, yes, is a leader, but is also free from, this goes back to what you had said earlier, actually, the outsider syndrome, right? Uh, is free from working within a system. He's not a bureaucrat. Uh, he's not worked his way up by, by convincing people or by... He's worked, his, he's worked his whole life, irrespective of what, uh, what other people think or say. He does his job, his job with the sheep. Now, again, just in a very abridged form, we say, so that's, that's good, and we say, okay, that's, that's great that Moshe's done that. Has this been 
has it totally replaced his first personality, or has it just sort of another skill set that he's learned? We don't know. I don't know. He's in a shepherd. How, does, how do we test it? This is your point. How do we test it? Well, here, here's something weird. What does Moshe do? Moshe the shepherd, if he's really just a shepherd, says, look, I'm a shepherd. There's a burning bush. Anyway, the bush is not being consumed. It's doing whatever it's doing. It's not my issue. I have my job. My flock is my flock. That's my concern. But we find, no, no, no. There's actually the reactive Moshe is still there. When he sees something weird, he still reacts. He says, well, what's going on there? Right? Let me go over there. Let me go see what's going on. Why, why is it not happening? There's going to be something weird about the world. Let me go see if I can, if I can untangle what's going on in the world. And God says, ah, that Moshe is still there. In that case, Here's the right candidate. Because here we have, here we have the reactive person, this person with a real sense of justice, but also someone who's cultivated a sense of, of studied patience, of someone who can work through something, who can lead. Uh, now, if, we, if, if he can combine both of those, and he's just the person I need for the job. And I think you're right. Only after he sees that he can react. Because uh, we knew that last chapter, but I don't know anymore. Is he still a reactive person? He still reacts? In that case, Moshe, uh, I have a job for you. Uh, so I'm going to have to leave it with that. But. Could it be in a way that Moses was sort of seeking the Spirit of God and that's what the burning bush is? So it's, it's worth thinking about because after all, he does, in verse 1, before Moses, before we think he knows, it says he came to the Har Elohim, comes to the Divine Mountain, um, and does that mean, and it's not relevant at that point, so does that mean that he's seeking the Divine Mountain? Is he you know, coming to the Divine Mountain? Uh, again, I, I personally think, just my judgment is that no, after all, he seems shocked by this uh, revelation, so it doesn't look like he was actually expecting well, or looking for it. But by the power of it. But ah, maybe. Maybe. I, it's, uh, you know, at best an open, open question, but I think you're right. I just wanted to tell you something I told you in your teaching. Oh, Science please. has proven, specifically quantum theory has proven that if something is not of a person's language, they can't see it. So that when Columbus came to the United to the Americas, the Indians here couldn't see it because they didn't have any point of reference for the ships. So in this way, we know that Moses had Moshe had to be somewhat knowledgeable. He had that learning because otherwise he couldn't have seen it. If it was sitting there burning for 20 years, he might not have seen it 20 years ago. And now he's learned it enough to see. What does that do with quantum theory? Quantum theory has shown, has proven, that if we don't have the language, we can't see it. If we don't have a frame of reference... Are you talking about actual quantum theory and physics? Yes. I mean... Okay, we can put that aside, I suppose. Maybe uh-huh. it was burning before, maybe it wasn't, but if he didn't have the point of reference, if he didn't have that learning and that leadership uh-huh. and that desire, then he would not have... Been able to I think the point, to, the point is well taken, but of course it depends on, this, on what this fire was. If the fire just is an actual fire that just showed up in verse 2, then maybe anyone would have seen it. Uh, it's just important that he actually pursued it, uh, you know, actually checked it out, rather than just saying, that's weird, there's a fire. Um, but uh, I, you know, I, think, I think you're right. If, if, if the fire has been here for 20 years, and Moses is the only one who noticed it, then obviously there's something else. Uh, that we have to, to say about it. Okay. Uh, all right. Thank you for your time. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you.